This morning we are starting our series through the book of Galatians, and as I mentioned last week, we're going we're gonna to plant ourselves here for a few months uh, as we work through this book. And we're going to be looking at, this morning, Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And I know you just sat down, but will you stand as we read God's word together? Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And I'll be reading from the CSB. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me. To the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God. The Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for our sins. To rescue us from this present age. According to the will of our God and Father. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father give us eyes to see. Ears to hear as we work through your word. And I pray that like Paul says. That. In everything that we do, our declaration will be to you, be glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Again, this morning, we're beginning this series through the book of Galatians. And the entire series, we've entitled it, Getting Back to Grace. Getting Back to Grace. And I just want to say, kind of up front, my little disclaimer, I am so excited about diving into the book of Galatians. Just to be frank with you, I don't know if you're supposed to have a favorite, but by and large, Galatians is, is one of my favorite books of the Bible. It is an incredible, incredible book of the Bible. And I feel good about that because I know I'm in good company with people who see uh, the magnitude of this book. Uh, Dr. John MacArthur notes in one of his commentaries that the book of Galatians has been conferred with such titles as the Magna Carta of Spiritual Liberty. It's the battle cry of the Reformation, and it is the church's declaration of independence. It is clearly the Holy Spirit's character of spiritual freedom for those who have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. New Testament scholar Merrill Tenney says this about the book of Galatians. Listen to this. He says, Christianity might have been just one more Jewish sect, and the thought of the Western world might have been entirely pagan if this book had not been written. The reason that we have tagged this series, Getting Back to Grace, is because that is the heartbeat of what Paul is calling the churches to do. It is the heartbeat of what God is communicating to these churches. Get back to grace. You see, what was going on is that the churches in Galatia had abandoned the truth of the gospel. They had forgotten the truth recorded in Ephesians 2.8 that for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. They had forgotten grace. They had strayed from grace. And so in this epistle throughout the entire book of Galatians, Paul, I would argue, has one ultimate aim. He is calling the churches in Galatia to come back to grace. Come back to grace. And I'm excited about this series because I believe that this series will be particularly encouraging to us, Newbreed Church, for two main reasons. I think that as we study this book in the weeks to come, that, that there are two reasons why this will be so meaningful to us. Here's the first reason. Just like those churches in Galatia, we are tempted often to stray from grace. 
We are tempted in different areas and through different means to deviate even slightly from the truth of the gospel for something that may look a little bit like the gospel. And it may have small strands of the gospel in it, but ultimately it is a false gospel. And this is the very thing that's happening to the churches in Galatia. We see that in chapter 1, verse 7, where Paul says, not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to, notice this word, distort the gospel of Christ. So it's not a full abandonment of the gospel. They're taking the beautiful message of the gospel and they're twisting it just enough that the message that the churches are believing in, it's close enough to the gospel to send them to hell. It's a distortion of the gospel. It has strands of the gospel riddled throughout it. It's close to the gospel, but it is not the gospel because they've strayed from grace. And so as we read Paul's call to the church to get back to grace, my prayer is that we would not only study this book and think, right, because there's a temptation to think, well, I don't really know how the church got that far off. They were really messed up. And so we have a, there's a temptation to only think about this letter in the context of the church of Galatia. But my prayer would be that we would realize that this same temptation is present in our lives and in our churches today. We too can be led astray in small ways from grace if we are not careful. We are tempted to stray. Let me just give you a couple of examples of what that can look like for us. And we'll, we'll dive a lot deeper into this in the weeks to come. The sermon next week uh, is entitled The Perfect Storm. And we're going to talk about how they were tempted to stray from grace and what it looked like in this perfect combination of events that came in to lead them into apostasy. But here's some ways that we can be tempted to stray from grace even now. Listen, we are tempted to stray from grace when we think that we have to earn God's favor after we sin. Anybody ever been there? Like we've screwed up so much in our, in our Christian life and we think that, man, God could never love me. God, God's, God's going to abandon me and so I've got to make it right with God. I've got to do enough Christian things. I've got to get this all right so that somehow God will still show me favor. Well, that's straying from grace. We are tempted to stray from grace when we act as if we have to be good enough for God to continue to love us. Anybody been there? We, we subconsciously have a view of God's love that it's so fickle that if we don't act just the right way, God's going to pull it away from us. That's straying from grace. We are tempted to stray from grace when we start to believe that how we live after our salvation does not matter. When we start to believe that we can pursue the things and the ways of this world and still somehow pursue Jesus simultaneously. We've strayed from grace. Listen, we are tempted to stray from grace when we start to believe that his grace is not enough for us today. And this last one, the temptation to believe that his grace is not strong enough for us today. This is one of the main areas where the churches in Galatia had strayed. And there are reasons for this. And again, we'll dive into this next week. But they had begun to believe, hear me, that they were sold a bill of goods in the gospel that just didn't measure up. They started to believe that this message of hope that Paul had shared with them, that this gospel of grace and love this gospel of salvation by faith, that it just wasn't enough. They started to see the gospel as insufficient for what was taking place in their lives. And so I believe that as we dive into this book, that we, we can be encouraged to fight to hold on to grace. 
But here's the second reason I think that this series, this study will be so important to us, so encouraging, is because this book reminds us, and and this is beautiful, church, this book reminds us that as long as there is breath in our lungs, there is grace extended to us. Not a one of us is so far gone that grace cannot reach out. And listen to me, this is good news for the unbeliever, but this is also especially good news for the believer as well. Here's the reason why I think that we can get caught in this trap of thinking that when we profess faith in Christ, but we have wandered and we have strayed and we have rebelled for so long, there's no way that God would let me come back. There is no way that God can still love me. And what this book reminds us of is as long as there is breath in our lungs, there is grace extended to us. Let me tell you why that's such good news. That means it doesn't matter how much you've botched your marriage. There's grace. It doesn't matter how much you've botched your relationship with your friends, with your family, with your children. There is grace. It does not matter how much you have botched your relationship with Jesus. There is grace upon grace extended to you. And we have the opportunity to get back to grace. I loved what one commentator noted. He was talking about the book of Galatians. And he said that so many people see the book of Galatians as basically the gospel to the legalist. And he said, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that this is the gospel to the prodigal. That this is grace extended to anyone who has strayed from God. And that's encouraging to us because if we're honest, we will all at one point or another stray. Even those of us in Christ, we will pursue our own ends. We will pursue sinful means. We will abandon, even for a moment, the hope of the gospel. And this book reminds us that there is grace. And we get to come back. So as we begin this study, and we're going to look specifically at the introduction, uh, this is one of those sermons where, you know, I want, to, I want to try to get as much application into it as we can, but in a lot of ways, this is just kind of setting the scene for us, right? Because if we're going to work through this whole book, there are just some things we've got to understand. There's some background, uh, some history, some notes that we need to make about this, and I want to offer you a little bit of background information so that you can understand the context around the book of Galatians. So this letter, the book of Galatians, was written by Paul, and I want you to note something. It's written to the churches in Galatia. A lot of times we think of the Galatian church, and we think it's just one local body. But, but, but Galatia is not a city. It, it's a province. It's a big area. And so in, in these letters, the churches, the specific churches in Galatia are not mentioned by name. But there are some churches in Galatia that we do know by name. Because in Acts 13 and 14, on Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey, they established churches in the southern part of Galatia. And they established them in the cities of Antioch, in Iconium, in Lystra and in Derby, and some of those cities we've we've heard about before. So, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. And so, Acts thirteen and fourteen tells of Paul and Barnabas's missionary journey, where they went and shared the gospel, and they planted these initial four churches. And, and I want to stress to you because this is gonna, you'll start to see why there's so much weight behind the Book of Galatians. Planting these churches was not easy for Paul. It was a lot of work. It was so difficult, actually, that we read about this in Acts chapter 14, that Paul was followed from town to town by Jewish leaders. And at one point, they caught up to Paul, and they stoned Paul. 
and they left him on the verge of death. That was the persecution he was facing as he was planning these churches. And by God's grace, Paul was spared. He did not die. And yet he was undeterred in his journey. And he was undeterred in his love for these churches. So much so that he traveled back through all of those cities to visit those churches. Even after almost being killed. And he went back to encourage them and to spur them on in their faith. So it is not an over-embellishment to say, listen, that Paul literally planted these churches through blood through sweat and through tears. And so we have to understand that that these aren't some churches that he planted and walked away from. He has a vested interest in and a deep, deep love for these churches that caused him to be willing to lay down his life for these churches. But that is why throughout the book of Galatians, we'll see him write with an intensity towards them that I would argue you don't see in any other letter written by Paul. So much so that he writes at the very end of the book in chapter 6, verse 11, look at what large letters I use to write to you and in my own handwriting. It's the only time Paul's ever said that. Look at how, basically you have this picture of Paul writing these letters to him, right? Like in modern day times, right? He's sending the text with all caps, right? Like he's screaming at them. He's saying, I have written this to you with large letters. And notice this, he says, and I've written it with my own hand. The reason that that's so significant is because most of Paul's epistles, he didn't write with his own hand. And you're like, wait, I thought Paul wrote all these. Well, we attribute him as the author because Paul would speak and people would transcribe the letter. So he would deliver what he wanted in them and people would write them down for him. He had scribed for him. But this letter, these churches, they mattered to him so much that he was not going to give anybody else the task of writing this letter. He wanted his name and his hand and his ink on the paper because he wanted them to know how serious he was about calling them back to grace. And we see the intensity that Paul writes to them even in our opening verses because Paul skips all of the normal pleasantries of his introduction and in the very first sentence he jumps right into addressing the issues at hand. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. He jumps right into dealing with the issues. He skips the pleasantries. He doesn't bring greetings from this person or that person. He doesn't tell them how encouraged he is by their faith or how well they've done in the past. He jumps right in and says, I'm going to just deal with the issues at hand. So to better understand this book, we have to understand what the main issues are that the churches are facing. And what is interesting to note is that in this introduction... Paul will make his first initial comments about every one of the issues facing the church. And I've kind of lumped them into three categories. There are three main issues that the churches in Galatia are facing. Three things that are causing them to stray from grace. And again, in the introduction, Paul's going to start initially, not in detail, but address each and every one of them. So what I want you to get from this sermon this morning is I want you to understand, and again, this is setting the stage for what's to come, I want you to understand the three pervasive issues that are facing the church. I want you to have a grasp of what is going on, because Paul is going to spend the rest of the book dealing in some way, shape, or form with each of these three issues. So here is the first issue of concern. Paul, throughout the book of Galatians, Paul is going to defend himself against the challenges to his apostleship. 
Paul is going to defend himself against the challenges to his own apostleship. In other words, Paul's going to have to defend his apostolic authority. He's going to have to defend his right to be an apostle. See, what's, what's happened in the churches in Galatia is that after Paul left, right, these churches were thriving. You get that, you get that indication from, from other things that we'll see in the text when Paul addresses them. They were, they were thriving in grace. They were holding fast to the truth of the gospel. But somewhere along the way, these false teachers have crept in. And basically what they started to do was they started to challenge the validity of Paul's apostleship. They, they began to argue that he does not have the qualifications to be an apostle. And they've started to argue that he is a self-appointed apostle and therefore he's not worth following. And Paul knows exactly what they're doing because he says in chapter 4 verse 7 that these people court you eagerly but not for good. They want to exclude you from me so that, they will, so that you will pursue them. So Paul understands, listen, the reason they're challenging my authority is not really because they think that you've bought into a lie. It's because they want you to follow them and they don't want you to follow me. And what, what these false teachers understand is that if they can destroy the credibility of the messenger, they can destroy the credibility of the message. And so they go after Paul's apostleship and they start saying he's a self-appointed apostle. He doesn't meet the qualifications. At best, he was set apart by man, but not by God. So Paul will address this throughout the book, but he starts right here in verse 1 to address this issue. And he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. Again, he, skip, he skips all the pleasantries. And he says, listen, if we're going to deal with this, we're going to deal with it, and we're going to deal with it now. And so he goes after this first idea that, that he doesn't have a right to be an apostle, and he reminds them of the fact that he was not commissioned by man. And even more than that, his salvation didn't even come about by typical means, right? And so when he says that he became an apostle not by, man, not by men, uh, not by an individual, but by Jesus Christ. The churches who knew Paul would have remembered his conversion story. Do you remember Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9? It says this, he was Saul then. It says, now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogue in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, that's Christianity, if they belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. Listen to this. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. He replied, but get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. And he was unable to see for three days and he did not eat or drink. You see, when he reminds them that he is not an apostle by earthly means, but by the commission of God through Jesus Christ, he is reminding them even of his conversion. 
Because to be an apostle, right, to even be qualified to be an apostle, one of the requirements was you would have had to have seen Jesus face to face. That is part of the reason why we believe that the office of apostle is done. Because as far as I'm aware, there's not a person alive who has seen Jesus face to face. Right? And so one of the qualifications to be an apostle was that you would have had to have seen Jesus face to face. And that's why that conversion story is so incredible and so necessary because Jesus himself showed up. So Paul saw who? Jesus. And in that conversion, God is so amazing, right? God met the prerequisites for Paul to be an apostle by allowing him to see his son Jesus. And so Paul is reminding him, listen, I'm not set apart by earthly means. I didn't just say, hey, I know, I'm going to stop killing Christians, and I'm going to just, I'm going to call myself an apostle for Christians. That wasn't what happened. No man came and said to Paul, hey, Paul, I think you should believe in Jesus, and you should start serving the church. No, Paul saw Jesus face to face, and it changed everything. It changed everything. Paul is reminding them, I was not called by man but by Jesus Christ who was sent by God and raised from the dead by God. And this is a side note. There's actually something very unique in the fact that he keeps tying Jesus to God the Father. Right in that introduction, he says there that, that it's, he's an apostle not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. Because here's the thing, those seeking to lead the people away, those those seeking to cause the churches in, in Galatia to divert from grace, they were trying to lead them back to Judaism. They were trying to lead them back to submit to the law rather than grace. And for the Jewish leaders, you have to remember, they did not see Jesus as God. So Paul is taking jabs even at the Judaizers in this statement where he is saying, listen, I'm an apostle from Jesus Christ who was sent by God as he is, he is intimately linking the Father and the Son. And even in that statement, he's arguing for the divinity of Jesus. He's arguing against the teaching of the Jewish leaders. I mean, his argument is brilliant, and what he's doing is just so masterful. And so throughout this book, you will see Paul reminding them of the truth that he is an apostle. It will come up again and again, not from men or by man, but through Jesus Christ. Therefore, therefore, he has the right to instruct them, and this right is not grounded in earthly authority, but it is grounded in divine power. But you know what's so crazy? Is that's actually where our right comes from too. Do you remember our sermon last week when we examined our mission? When Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Your commission is not grounded in earthly means. You are not called, you are not called by men. You are called and commissioned with the very authority and power of Jesus Christ, like Paul has the divine right to instruct these churches as an apostle, you have a divine right to make much of the gospel because of your sainthood. But note this, I want you to, I want you to get this. Paul's willingness to even address the fact that he has the right to be an apostle shows just how much he loves them. Because we can't forget that in the 
heavenly sense, Paul has nothing to prove. Yet he is willing to prove it in defense of the gospel and out of his love for these churches. He wants these people to know that he loves them and he wants to see them get back to grace. Because we have to remember, nowhere in scripture are we called to validate ourselves. We don't have to validate our own calling. We don't have to vindicate ourselves when the world tells us that we don't have the right to share the gospel, that we don't have the right to speak into situations. The Bible says in Psalm 43:1, vindicate me, God, and champion my cause against an unfaithful nation. God will vindicate us. God is the one who we seek to make much of, and God will defend us. Paul does not have to. He does not have to validate himself as an apostle yet because he loves these churches so much. He is willing to go to extreme lengths to call them back to grace. Let me ask you a question. How far are you willing to go when your brothers and sisters stray from truth? How far are you willing to go to call them back to grace? See, Paul's not only doing an incredible thing, but he's modeling for us what it looks like to love people with such a deep love that we will go the extra mile to see them come to grace. Paul is fighting for them. And so throughout the book of Galatians and what he even addresses here in the introduction, we will see Paul defend his right to be an apostle, not because he feels like he has to make a name for himself, because the gospel matters that much to him. And if that's a hindrance to them, he wants to remove it from them so that they can come back to grace. But here's the second main issue, the main area of concern that Paul will address throughout this book of Galatians is Paul will address false teachers who have taught false doctrines. Paul is going to address throughout this book, and this will be the bulk of it, false teachers who have taught false doctrines. You see, what has happened, and we mentioned it briefly, is that the Judaizers, that's what we call them, they had come into the church, and the Judaizers are those who basically teach that the way to be made right with God is by keeping the law. Right? It's almost as if they take the same approach as Satan did with Adam and Eve in the garden. They take it with the churches in Galatia. Did Paul really say that you could be made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Did he really say that? No, 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 no. See, see God, this is, where, this is where the deception comes in. He says, God does want to be made right with you. God wants you to be reconciled to him. But it doesn't come by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's too simple. No, 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 God wants you to be made right with him. And, and the way that you do that is by keeping the law. Why else would he give you the law? Why else would God give you all of these commands? He's trying to help you get back to him to be made right with him. So it's not about grace. It's about keeping the law. And this is the false teaching that has crept into the church. And the scary thing is that the church is, is, the church is eating it hook, line, and sinker. So much so, and we'll read a, a quote about that in the commentary, so much so that even the grown individuals in the church were really considering circumcising themselves. Which if you know anything about that in that day and age, it wasn't the most sterile process, it wasn't the safest process, yet these grown men are buying in so much that they think if we don't get circumcised, we cannot keep the law and we cannot be children of promise and we cannot be made right with God. And Paul's looking at this and saying, but grace... But grace. Paul writes in, in the very next verses, in verses 6 and 7, he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. 
And he says, not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And it is a distortion. It's not a complete abandonment because it has these little aspects of, of the gospel in it. But it is enough that it is, it is, is close enough to the gospel to send them straight to hell. And like Paul, right, they do see their need to be made right with God. The Judaizers do argue that God has provided a way for them to be made right. But where they differ is that Paul argues rightly that the way is by grace through faith. And the Judaizers are arguing that it is by the law through works. And so there are two competing arguments. And the church has abandoned grace and they're pursuing this false teaching. And Paul says there in verses 6 and 7 that he is shocked that they have believed a lie, but he understands why. He's not shocked as if it's completely caught him off guard, because in the very next verses, what we'll see next week, he goes on and talks about the fact that, yeah, I know why you've done it. It makes sense to me, but he is still shocked that these people who, have, who had trusted in Christ by faith through grace, they're abandoning that grace to pursue lesser means. So what we'll talk about again next week is that perfect storm that led this, the churches into this apostasy. And I'm, I'm eager to preach that one because what we will see again is that this combination of things that led them astray is the same combination of things we face to this day. And if we are not on guard, we too can stray from grace. But let me mention this, too, because I think here's a point of application for us. One of the things that stood out to me was that Paul writes down and, and communicates them his shock and that his heart is broken because people have strayed from the truth of the gospel to false doctrine. And I want to just commend to you that that is the right response when people stray from grace, to be shocked and to be heartbroken. Yet the sad thing for many churches and many Christians today is that when we see people we once respected or people who once held so fast to grace, we see them start to stray and start to pull back and start to teach and communicate false things. For most of us, it's not a sense of shock or heartbreak. It's how quickly we can get on the keyboard and slam them on Twitter and Facebook. How easy it is for us to write off those people who were once in the face but have strayed of like, well, they're just, they're just heretics. It is what it is. They've walked into apostasy. Let the Lord deal with them. And what Paul reveals here is that when the saints stray, it should break our hearts as believers. That it should shock us. And our approach should be that of Paul of, I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight to remind you of the grace that you are abandoning. I'm going to fight for that. And we need that in the big things and we need that in the small things. We as brothers and sisters on a day in and day out basis, when we sin, we stray from grace and we need one another to be broken over our sin and to fight to pull us back to that place of grace, to get back to grace. Paul addresses this very issue again in the introduction as well, this false teachers and, and the false teaching. And notice what he says there in verse three and four in the introduction. He says, grace to you and peace from God the Father. And our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and 
Father. And those two words that he started with, right? Paul has started a lot of his letters with things like grace and peace to you. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a fairly common greeting for Paul. But in this case, in this instant, those two words are shots right to the heart. He says, grace and peace to you. What are they walking away from? Grace. What do they want? Peace. And what he says is grace and peace. It's found nowhere and in nothing but Jesus Christ. And so when he says grace, Paul is reminding them that it is grace that they need, not the law, not works, not to do the right actions. They need grace, and this grace is from God. Great grace is given by God, and it is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. In essence, what Paul is doing in this simple sentence is summarizing the gospel to them that he has preached to them before, the gospel that they once believed in. The gospel that we believe in, that every one of us, every single person has rebelled and sinned against God. And listen, and God should destroy us. We can't miss that. God is right. God is right to send us to hell. It is fair. It is just. It is what a holy God ought to do to sinful people. And yet, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our rebellion, when God should have destroyed us, he sent, even as Paul says, Jesus Christ that God's grace is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the living, breathing, tangible picture of God's grace to us. Because Jesus came and he did keep the law, the thing that we couldn't do, yet which is what's so shocking that they're trying to go back to it because they couldn't do it before, what makes them think they can do it again. But Jesus did fulfill the law, and so he didn't deserve to die. And yet in our place he stood condemned where God poured out that anger and that hatred and that wrath on him. And he invites us to be made right with him, the thing they are longing for, by grace through faith in Christ. He's reminding them of the gospel, and he's saying it is all by grace. You want to be made right with God? It's by grace. There is nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. There is no amount of law that you can fulfill, because even as it says in Scripture in James 2.10, if we keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, we're guilty of all. You guys have heard me say that when God looks at us, he doesn't see liar, he doesn't see, he doesn't see a, a proud person, he doesn't, see, he doesn't see a lustful person, he doesn't see a murderer, he doesn't see a rapist, he doesn't see a, sex, a sexually immoral person. He looks at us and he sees a lawbreaker, enough to condemn us for all of eternity. One sin, guilty of all of it. You're guilty of all, and Jesus kept it and never stumbled in one point. And, and, and God declares to us through Christ that we can be made right with him through Jesus. We need grace. The law won't work. The law won't work. And so Paul is, is reminding them of this. But then he says peace. And so we have to understand part of the reason that they were so susceptible to stray from grace, and we'll dive into this more next week, is that they were struggling. They were genuinely struggling. The gospel had brought them persecution. The gospel had brought them hardship. The gospel had ostracized them from their Jewish counterparts. And they were honestly wondering if they were believing the right thing. They were wondering if this was worth it and if the gospel was enough. They were wondering if maybe they just needed a little bit more. Maybe their salvation and peace depended on keeping the law. Maybe there were proactive steps they could take. And so Paul reminds them that not only is grace from Jesus, but peace is found only in Jesus. The one who gave himself for our sins. And here is the peace, he says, right, to rescue us from this present evil age. Now note what it doesn't say. Jesus did not die to give you peace to remove you from this present age. 
It says to rescue you from this present age. Because all of us who came to know Christ were left right here, were we not? I mean, it would have been kind of dope if we came to faith and Jesus just raptured us up. That would have been pretty cool. I'd be okay with that. I hate sin. I hate struggling with sin in this life. I hate failing. I hate falling. I praise God for grace. But he doesn't say, I saved you to remove you. No, the peace is in the fact that he has rescued us from this present age. So we feel the sting of this world. We feel the hardship of this world. We feel the persecution of the world. But our peace is not in this world. Our peace is in the fact that he has rescued us from it. That no matter what comes in this world, no matter how hard the persecution, how heavy, how fierce, our hope is in the fact that one day we will dwell with him. He has saved us. That is our peace. And they had forgotten this. It's kind of hard to fathom. The churches had just forgotten this. They'd strayed from it. I like how Todd Wilson explains what is going on here when he writes this in his commentary. He says, Paul's once enthusiastic converts were now ambivalent at best. They developed misgivings about where Paul had told them, or whether Paul had told them the whole story and whether the gospel could get them to where they needed to go spiritually. Thus, they were suffering from a bad case of buyer's remorse. And the upshot of which was to turn away from the one who called them in the grace of Christ and to be true to a different gospel, the one the Judaizers preached. And so serious, in fact, was their crisis of faith that they were ready to submit to the knife and get circumcised. No small step for them to take. But what I like about what he writes is that he takes this and he applies it to us next. And he says this, some of us find ourselves in a similar situation to the Galatians. We embraced the gospel with great enthusiasm at first, but we have found that living the Christian life isn't what we've expected. Have you ever been there? Part of it is because so many false teachers have even crept into our churches and told you that when you come to Jesus, everything's just going to be grand. You won't struggle. You won't hurt. Your bank account's going to be full. Amen. <laughs> Nobody in your family is ever going to get sick, cancer. Y'all going to go on vacation and you'll all die peacefully in your beds at the same time so no one has to mourn. I know it sounds foolish, but this has crept into the church. It really has. Which is why when hardships come, at times we might even be thinking, have I done something to irritate God? Like, is God mad at me right now? Is he punishing me for something? That is the same lie in a different form that the churches in Galatia bought into. God never promised ease in this world. God never promised that coming to Christ would be easy. So much so, and we forget this part, that Jesus looked at people who said, I want to follow you, and he said, wait a minute, count the cost. You, you need to weigh this. This isn't a light decision that you're making because the cross, listen, the cross is not just an instrument of torture. When he says pick up your cross, he's not just saying be willing to die. A lot of us are good with that. I'll die for Christ. We've got to remember the cross was, was also a means of humiliation. So he says pick up your cross and come and die for me and be willing to be humiliated for me. And some of us like, hold on, I didn't sign up for that because I still want people to like me. It's going to lead into our third problem that shows up in this book, and that's the fear of man, right? Like, I care a lot about what people think. So I'm good to carry my cross and die for Christ, but don't ask me to be shamed for Christ. 
we came to this buying into this, this, this false idea of the gospel. And some of us have even come to a place where we ask the question, is this really worth it? And so Paul shoots right to the heart. And he says, no, no, no. Grace in Jesus and peace in Jesus. But it might not be what you thought it would be. Just throughout the book of Galatians, we will see Paul just do work on these false teachers and this false teaching. But here's the third and final thing, the, main, the third issue, the kind of this key idea that Paul is going to address throughout the entire book of Galatians, right? I'm trying to give you a you know, 30,000 foot overview of kind of what we'll see in all of the book, but the third main issue, and, and I'm excited about this one because for me, I need to be reminded of this temptation, but he's going to deal with the temptation to have a fear of man. He's going to deal with the temptation to have a fear of man. What we mean by fear of man is basically where we care more about what people think than what God thinks. We'll follow God as long as it doesn't put us at odds with people. But the moment it puts us at odds with people, we're going we're gonna to please people and not God. I've been there. There are Sunday mornings I step up here and I, 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 I battle that. I mean, if I say this, it could hurt somebody's feelings. It could be offensive. Do I care more about what God thinks or more about what you think? Fear of man is not just a fear of man when they're lost. We can have a fear of man with anyone around. I can have a fear of man of my wife. She's not that scary, but I can have a fear of man. But Paul is going to address this idea of fear of man. And basically, see, what Paul is dealing with is a group of people who have stopped caring about pleasing God. And let me just warn you, church, that is a scary place to get. Where we stop caring about pleasing God. He highlights this very issue at the end of the book in chapter 6, verse 12, when he writes that those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised, but only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. He is basically telling them, listen, if you buy into this lie, you are declaring that you care more about people than you do about God. And he addresses this in his introduction as well, because look at what he says there in verse 5. This is not just a cute saying. Paul has a meaning behind every word of this. So when Paul says, to him be the glory forever and ever, amen, he is stamping that in their minds that we are here to bring glory to God forever and ever, amen. He is the only one who matters. He's the only one who matters. And with this simple statement, Paul is reminding the readers that the gospel was for God's glory and he saved us for his glory. Everything else should pale in comparison. And can I just remind you of that this morning? That when things get hard, when things get tough, when this world and Jesus come in conflict, when God allows us to go through earthly suffering. What matters above all is the glory of God. Not our well-being, not our ease, not our comfort. It's the glory of God. And listen, in light of what he has done for us, making much of him is the least that we can do. If we genuinely believe what Paul says there in his introduction, that Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, right? That, that it's these ones that matter, that, that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. The least I can do is make much of him in this life. And so as we move through this book, 
we will see Paul get more specific. He'll deal with these issues. He'll expound more truth. And at the end of the day, at the end of the day, when all is said and done, he will call the churches back to grace. He will call them back to grace. And I want to remind you this morning that without God's grace, we are nothing. Without God's grace, we have nothing. And so again, my prayer is twofold, that we would be reminded of the temptation to stray from grace and that we would fight against it with all that we have. And as we work through this book of Galatians, my prayer is that we would cherish the fact that as long as there is breath in our lungs, God's grace is extended to us.